Hey friends, we hope this message from C3 Fort Worth helps you see Jesus like never before. And if you're in or around Fort Worth, we'd love to meet you on a Sunday or at one of our weekly dinner parties. One of the patterns of Jesus in our, in our understanding is that we go from the temple to the table and we go back again. That the rhythm of growing in Christ is somehow to find yourself in a space like this, as Jesus did, as the disciples did. It's funny, after Jesus died and resurrected, the disciples didn't stop going to church. It wasn't like, oh, we saw Jesus come alive, we're good. In fact, they continued in the tradition of coming to the temple, coming into the church, into the gathered body of the saints in that neighborhood or in that city, and then they would go back to the table because the table is where you look other people in the eye, and I know that we're doing church in the square, so you are doing your best to avoid looking other people in the eye from across the way, Um, but the goal here is that we would go from this kind of... um, you know, one person sharing to, to this opportunity where everybody's sharing. And I know that there, there's, there's a challenge there, but the reality is, is that every discipline of Christ is both a challenge and a reward in itself. There's something about praying that can be hard and yet incredibly rewarding. There's something about reading your word that can be challenging and also rewarding. There's something about gathering with people, being committed and intentional around gathering with others uh, that, that can be a challenge because life gets busy and things get hard. And I saw coworkers today, so why do I need to see other people tonight? And you know, there's, they're different. Um, and maybe you can bring your coworkers to the table. Um, there's something challenging about that at times. Some of you are gifted at that. You would have people at your table every day if you could. Um, you need to work on that withdrawal and return pattern of Jesus, um, the Sabbath pattern of Jesus. But but this idea that we would go back and forth, and, and one of the greatest missional tools that you will ever see Jesus use in the Gospels is the table. It's the table. It, it can be a bit intimidating to invite someone here to church, uh, but to invite them to your house for dinner is a completely different thing. And so we want to really encourage you. Some of you that have hosted for a long time, you, are, you have created an environment in our church that's really, really um, incredible. Um, I'm going to talk about it in a minute. Um, but, uh, well, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into it. All right, I want you to turn in your Bibles. I want you to turn in your Bibles. Well, I'm going to go a few different verses. You can pick the one you want to turn to because we're not going to hang out in all of them or one of them more than the others. We're going to read them all uh, together, and then, uh, and then I'm going to jump in. Um, again, we're following the lectionary. If you don't know what that is, that's fine. You can look it up. Uh, but really, there's about a 1,000. There's probably more than that. There's thousands of churches all over the world right now reading these same verses um, maybe not preaching the exact same message, uh, but this is kind of a three-year cycle. So over the course of three years, technically we're in year C. We're in the third year of the lectionary, and you cover the main, uh, really most of the Bible you've read in church by the end of uh, the end of the lectionary. It's a really really cool thing, and I'm actually loving the way I'm seeing uh, maybe the more liturgical. Um, even sacramental churches uh, beginning to merge with this, um, this spirit-filled, uh, evangelistic, evangelical kind of thing where these things are kind of coming together in a space where both are learning from each other. I just don't find very movements where I can't learn something from them. And, and what we tend to do as movements, because, you know, we want, we want to establish ourselves, is we compare ourselves to other movements. We compare ourselves to other styles of worship. Well, that can't possibly be fulfilling for them, because it's not like the way I do it. Um, and, and you find very quickly, like if you get married, or you get a roommate, or you, you find just very quickly that, that life can look different for other people, and it's okay. 
Um, I do think there's some core characteristics of the faith. I absolutely believe that. I believe that there's some core kind of um, defining uh, characteristics. You would, you would have to say in Acts 2, joy and generosity are two of those, right? That the church is joyful, that the church is uh, generous. Um, it, in fact, one of the people I've learned the most about the Holy Spirit from, and I don't ever remember his name, but in our Alpha course, which I'd love for you to join, we spend a whole course, a whole night on the Holy Spirit, and then a whole weekend on the Holy Spirit, and it's one of the most healthy uh, uh, conversations around the Holy Spirit that there is. Is a, what's it, what, do you remember his name? It's, it's a hard name, but he's a, he's not a bishop, he's a, uh, he's a friar? No, just joking. Um, he's a consul to the Pope, uh, and he talks about the Holy Spirit with such a richness and a joy, and it's, it's, uh, it's really, really cool. So we're in this kind of series over the last couple of weeks around the Holy Spirit, around uh, how do we see heaven on earth? How do we see heaven on earth? So let me read these scriptures to you. I'm going to first go to Psalm 36. Uh, Donnie already read out of Isaiah, and it just hit me. I was sitting over there in worship changing my message 14 different times. It was wild because it was so, uh, it was so, so good. But he already read out of Isaiah, and the, and the principle in Isaiah, and let me just set this up, because the Old Testament scriptures kind of set up the New Testament scriptures for today. In Isaiah, God says to his people, he says, you will no longer be named desolate. You will no longer be known desolate. You will be known as the one in whom I delight. You will be, like, and, and your name will be, and it actually says it, your name will be married. In the message translation, it says, your name will be like a wedding celebration, People will know you as one whom I delight in. What did we read last week? What does the Holy Spirit come down and do? Confirm Jesus' identity before even the gifts happen. And what does God say to him? He says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Some translation says, I am delighted in you. I want you to think about that. Again, Jesus, while he was in here with a singular mission of dying and resurrecting where we would not have to do that, he did give us a pattern. And even Paul says that you in baptism are identifying with his death and his resurrection. Everything Jesus did, Jesus gave us a pattern. I mean, he took on a cross and then told us to do what? Take up a cross, right? He, 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 he sat at table with sinners, and then he tells us to do what? And then what does he do? He washes the feet of his disciples so we would stop thinking that when sinners come in, we get to point out all their stuff because we all realize we have dirty feet. Every one of us had dirty feet. By the end of today, you're going to take your shoes off, throw your socks in the wash, I hope, and you're going to go, man, that was, that's rough. So we, have, we all have these patterns. Jesus is showing us all these things, and he shows us in this moment with the Holy Spirit that God says, I am delighted in you. And in Isaiah, this prophetic book, what are we hearing? That God delights in his people. It'll be like a wedding feast. That's what I'm calling you now. I'm calling you a wedding celebration. That's what I'm calling you. Now I want you to read out of Psalm 36. 36 verse 7 and 9. Psalm 36 verse 7 and 9. It says this. It says, God, your faithful love is so valuable that people take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They are filled from the abundance of your house. You let them drink from your refreshing stream. For you, with your, sorry, for with you is life's fountain. In your light, we see light. That's come up a lot lately. But I want you, I want to read a few other translations of that word filled because we can hear that and, and kind of make it super spiritual and, and we can be like, yeah, I'm full. But we don't really think about it in the way that this, this author is trying to write it. I want you to read it in a few other translations. It says this, they are filled, abundantly satisfied. Abundantly satisfied to eat our fill at the banquet. 
to feast on the abundance, fulfilled greatly of the plenty of thine house. And you want to guess what translation that was from? And this is my favorite. Filled from the fatness. Come on, bacon burn-ins. Hello, Heim Barbecue. When we go to Heim Barbecue, Mare always gets brisket, lean brisket. I'm like, babe, you are ruining the taste of the brisket. Leave the fat on there because that's what makes me feel bad about myself when I'm done and I'm full and I'm like barely walking out of the door because I'm like, yeah, that, I'm going to be filled. Everybody has their tradition. After Thanksgiving meal, you get done and everybody's got a chair they go sit in. They got, you know, they, they, some of you unbutton your pants, right? Like you sit you, you, and then you pull the shirt. And you're like, oh my gosh. I don't want to tell you who in my family has that tradition. But we, we, we like, we, when we get filled, this is, this is not this kind of like nice, fit, like cute way of saying filled. And one, one commentator said, it is, it is almost as though you are inebriated by the amount of food you have eaten. Anybody ever been there with a good meal? You ever been there where you're going, oh my gosh, I can't walk the same. Y'all just need to leave me alone. I am in heaven right now. I am so full. That's what the author's trying to say. It's what God's saying to his people in Isaiah. You're like a wedding feast. Because remember, the Jewish tra uh, tradition of a wedding was not one day, six hours at nighttime, where everybody, you paid 25 grand to rent out a venue, right? This was a wedding feast that would go on for days. For days. This is the biggest thing you could do. Which is why today's reading out of John is so significant. So if you want to go to John chapter 2, this is the first of multiple signs that we see in the Gospel of John. Yes, it's a miracle, but they've come to be known by the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Seven miracles. And it is significant that the very first one that we see in the Gospel is this one. Now, the context for this is that Jesus has just been baptized, right? Jesus has just picked a couple disciples. And it actually says just a few days later, Jesus ends up at the wedding. I love that Jesus ends up at a wedding. It actually says he was invited to the wedding. Jesus didn't just show up at the wedding. He was not party crashing. He showed up because he was invited. I love that about my God, that he's invited to parties. But I just, please, please don't, please don't ever become the church that thinks to be solemn and serious all the time is somehow more spiritual. Yes, there is time for that. Yes, it's good to do it. But I'm going to tell you right now, there is something so spiritual about the joy of the Lord. So spiritual about a smile and a laugh and a celebration. So we find that in Jesus, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it says this, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother, mother was there, uh, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the, the, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. I love this. Jesus' mother doesn't say, Make some more. She just kind of, it's like, it's, it's like when your kids leave something in the living room and you say, hey, bud, there's a towel on the floor. You don't have to say what should happen next. You just say, this is, this is happening. What are you going to do about it? How good of a parent have I been? Are you going to do what is right in this moment? And so Jesus' mom, Right? It's almost like, Jesus, you shouldn't have said that whole honor your father and mother thing because you're, you're, you're about to exercise this gift. She says, hey, there's, they don't have any wine. They don't have any wine. And Jesus responds, what has this concern of yours to do with me? 
Wow. Wow. Now, he's not trying to be ugly, sarcastic. He's not trying to be, you know. But he is trying to say, hey, what, does that, are, you, are you asking me something? Again, just like a child would do. Are you asking me something? Are you, are you wanting me to do something about this? What does that have to do with me? And then he says this really, really important statement. My hour has not yet come. Now, what is he trying to tell him? Because you've heard this in other places, right? Don't go tell anybody that I healed you because I, it's not my time yet. So Jesus says this to, the, to his mom, says, it's not my time. What is he saying? The moment you click this domino, the moment you touch this domino, the rest of them are going to start falling. The moment, I, the moment I step into this moment, I've been baptized, I've picked some disciples, and the moment I step into this moment, everything else is about to go. Now, these seven signs of Jesus, there's multiple, and I'll read them all to you because they're, they're important. Um, the, the different signs are this. Uh, let me get to it. Here we go. The water to wine, healing the royal official's son, healing the paralytic, feeding of the 5,000 with bread and fish, walking on water, healing a man born blind, raising Lazarus from the dead. And I don't know about you, there's one of these that doesn't seem to fit, Right? Breaking bread and, and, and fish and multiplying it to 5,000 people or, or uh, raising the royal official's son or walking on water or making water wine. But it's, it's actually the first one. And there is an order to this. It's of great importance. And what do signs do? Signs tell you where you are and where you're going. Right? When you're driving a, a big, long road trip, there's a sign at the, at the border that says, oh, you've entered this place. You're like, okay, I've made progress. I'm not just driving around Texas for hours and hours and hours in the wrong direction. But I'm going, I'm actually going somewhere. And what these signs are doing with Jesus is they're pointing to a few things. One, who is Jesus? And what does he come to do? And the very first one we see is what? At the wedding in Galilee. In, Ga in Galilee. He's, he's, he's about to do something. And, and his mom says, you got to, there's no more wine. And Jesus goes, oh, I don't, okay, whatever. So what does this have to do with me? Because it's not my time yet. So he looks over to the servants. Actually, sorry, now six, uh, do whatever he tells you. Sorry, verse five, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Do whatever he says. I love that his mom responds not with an answer to him, but with his, he looks over, she looks over at the servant, she's like, I know he's going to do what I said. Like, she's, he's going to do it, right? He, he does, she doesn't even question it. it what, what do I have to do with the thing that you need to be done? And she just walks away and goes, just do what he says. And so Jesus looks over and, and over in verse 6, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained, I want you to catch this, each contained 20 or 30 gallons. 20 or 30 gallons. See, if we would miss the miracle if we think the miracle is simply turning water to wine. We'll miss the whole point of the miracle if we think it's just water to wine. We will. We'll miss the whole thing if we think that's what it is. Because the descriptors of the situation change the whole point. Right? What does it say? 20 or 30 gallons. Each of them holds 20 or 30 gallons. Each of them. And how many are there? Six. Yeah, you can do the math. 120 to 180 gallons of water is what Jesus is asking for. I want you to fill all those with water. Just go do that. So Jesus, verse 7, says, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. His mom has some power, I guess. So they filled them to the brim. Filled them to the very, very top. So we're not at 179. We're at 180. Might even be cheating. We might be a little more. 180 gallons filled with water. 
Now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had uh, become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people have drunk freely, as it, once they don't care what it tastes like, they put out the rest. Once they've had two days, three days of drinking this wine, they go, all right, it doesn't matter what we put out now. You might as well just put out the water. They won't even know. It's probably good for them. It says, but you, you have kept the fine wine until now. I want you, as you're reading this, there are always two layers to Scripture. There is what is happening and what is being said and shown. There is what is happening and what we're finding out just on surface level about who Jesus is and what His kingdom looks like. And there is always this undercurrent of what the kingdom of heaven looks like on the earth. What are we finding out? 180 gallons. What are we finding out about the kingdom in 180 gallons? What are we finding out about the kingdom that the best was by Jesus? What are we finding out about the kingdom that they've already had a ton to drink and Jesus is willing to give them 180 gallons more? What are we finding out about the kingdom that it was filled to the brim? What are we finding out about Jesus that He would give the best at the last? What are we finding out about Jesus? We're not, just, we're not just kind of finding out that he did a miracle. We're finding out who we are as the kingdom of people of God. But you've kept the finest wine until now. Verse, verse 11, Jesus performed his first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And his disciples believed in him. They, they saw the display that Jesus had put on. Okay, now let's jump to 1 Corinthians. I'm, I'm taking way too much time to read it. This is just the way I like to read the Bible, and it just it, it, it takes time. All right, you should see my morning devotions. I never get through the year in the Bible. I never get through the Bible in a year. I, I just can't do it because I just, it just, it, the Bible's too rich sometimes for me. I can't, Scott did the whole 90 day or 30 days reading the Bible. He said it's more like 40, but still, it's pretty impressive. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. Now concerning what comes from the Spirit, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you used to be led off to idols that couldn't speak. He's contrasting and comparing to the God he's speaking about. Therefore, I am informing you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. Do you think he's trying to emphasize the gifts, or is he trying to emphasize something else? What do we tend to do in the church? We emphasize what? The gifts? But what is Paul trying to do? He's emphasizing the Spirit. They all come from the same place. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. Verse 7, a demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. To produce what is beneficial. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith 
by the same Spirit. What is He trying to tell us? To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of languages. To another, interpretations of languages. You can see as even he's writing this letter. He's like, I'm going to get through this because I want to emphasize one more thing in verse 11. But one and the same Spirit is active in all of these, distributing to each person as He wills. What's the purpose of that scripture? That God is a gift giver, and all the gifts you have, He gave. I absolutely believe in the gifts of the Spirit, 100%. Um, and I will have that discussion with you if you're like, I'm not so sure. And you can still be in this church if you're not sure. I'm cool with that. I'm totally cool with that. But I, I absolutely believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I think Scripture kind of testifies to that. I think you see it all over the place. But, but the point of this Scripture is not to kind of go, where do you find yourself on the list? Right. The point of this section of Scripture is to go, who's the one person it all comes from? Find him. And he'll give them as he decides. We, man, we chase gifts. We pursue gifts. Oh, I got to get this one. I, I want to have the wisdom one. And I want to have the tongues one. I want to have the prophecy one. If I have the tongues one, no one actually knows if I'm doing it right anyways. If I have, if I have this one and that one, I can have all these things. And, I, and, and then I can be elite. And I can be the one. And I can be... This is not a scripture to help divide people. It is a scripture to help unite people that there is only one place these gifts come from and they come from the Lord and that is what you should concern yourself with. Why? Because the Lord will no longer call you desolate but delight in you. Why? Because He will fill you to the brim and at His table you will feast and be inebriated by how much you get from Him and in so doing you will walk in these gifts. Emptiness is a problem in our society. I mean, right now you might think it's empty shelves. I don't know how many times I've heard Meredith recently say, man, I can't get this from where I normally get this, and I can't get this from where I normally get this. I pulled up to Starbucks to get Mare a coffee. Not me, I got Mare a coffee. And, and there was like 17 little things on there that said, uh, we'll be back soon. We'll be back soon. We'll be back soon. We'll be back soon. It's like they're all gone, except the one Meredith likes, so that was good. Jack in the box, what? I don't, yeah, okay. So, good to know. It might, it might be empty shelves. It might, it might be, it might be, it might just be empty bank account. It, it, it might be, uh, it, it might be just a empty gas tank. I remember driving with some buddies one time. We were supposed to be going to this camp, and I decided to drive, and we're driving, and I, I didn't pay attention, and I, we ran out of gas. Luckily, we were close to the exit that we needed to go to. The only problem was I got freaked out by the fact that I'm driving with zero gas and I'm just rolling off of the exit. And so I don't slow down. I go, I pull, no, I don't blow up the gas station. Some of you guys are wondering. But I pull in the gas station and I hit the brakes and I hit those things hard. I hit them real hard and everybody in the car except me because I knew I was hitting the brakes, slamming their face into the, into the seat in front of them or the dashboard, whichever one. I, it might be the empty gas tanks. It might be the empty bank account. It might be the empty shelves. It, it might be a lot of different empty, but it's weird, right? Because the empty things in our life, so many times they, they poke and, and prod at something deeper. When we see an empty shelf, we go, oh, am I able to handle this? When we see an empty bank account, we go, oh my gosh, am I even good enough? When we, when we see all the empty things, it actually begins to pull at something on the inside deeper than just what's out here, just the exterior things. And we deal with this emptiness. We start to look inwards at this emptiness of our own soul. 
In his book, Soul Keeping, John Ortberg shares this. He says, we, the soul was not made to run on empty. But the soul doesn't come with a gauge. The indication of soul fatigue are more subtle. Things seem to bother you more than they should. Your spouse's gum-chewing suddenly reveals to you a massive character flaw in yourself. It's hard to make up your mind about even a simple decision. Impulses to eat or drink or spend or crave are harder to resist than they otherwise would be. You are more likely to favor short-term gains in ways that leave you with high long-term costs. Israel worshipped a golden calf waiting on Moses to come down the mountain. Your judgment is suffering. You have less courage. Fatigue makes a coward of us all. Is a quote so ubiquitous that it has been attributed to multiple people. The same disciples who fled in fear when Jesus was crucified eventually sacrificed their lives for him. What changed was not their bodies, but their soul. He goes on to say, I used to live under this assumption that if everything would work itself out out here, exterior, then I would be fine in here. But many of us, at least at some point in the last six months to a year, have stayed up too late thinking about the things that, don't have, that we don't have or that we want or we wish we had or we wish had gone better or we wish we'd be further along. Or wish. And there's this thing that fills us and we can be so void of it. And in our current culture, in the, in a, even in a, a, a desire for loving ourselves and, and believing in ourselves, we can almost become so obsessed with ourselves that, that at some point we realize no matter how much we care about ourselves, ourselves will never fix ourselves. One of the challenges of living in current culture is to say, yes, I love people and I love myself, but man, there's only one thing that seems to fix all the love I need, and that is loving something beyond myself and knowing the delight of that love. What are we finding out in all of these scriptures as we set up? What are we discovering about the emptiness of our lives? What are we finding out as we see Jesus? Well, if Jesus' miracle at Canaan means anything, it means that you and I are not meant to live on empty. It means that you and I are not meant to live hoping and praying and believing. Just, oh man, I hope someday I'll be full. That the kingdom of God, the desire, the hope is that the kingdom would be filled in our lives. That we would have a fullness that we walk in and we live in. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily easy. I know that we all go through difficult seasons and battle tough times, but, but the picture, the ideal is that in the kingdom, in Christ, we would be full. See, Jesus at the wedding of Cana is giving us a picture of what it looks like. And again, I want to I make sure that we understand something. That, that this is not just about water to wine. They only did that because they could only use four or five words in the heading of your chapter. But that is not the fullness of this miracle. The fullness of this miracle is not that water turned to wine. The fullness of this story is that the party was about to run out. And Jesus says no. See, in, in this culture, in this, in this time, it would have been a major, major issue if they had run out of the things they needed for a wedding. Kristen, tell me, if you guys run out of something at a wedding, does it, it kind of causes a problem. Am I correct? In fact, you, we saw you Friday night, and they didn't have anybody to serve some stuff. You had to go bring it, because it's a big deal when you run out of the thing. And in this culture, in fact, there would be times if, it, if, it, if you did run out, you actually would be indebted to the guest of your own wedding, because you didn't provide everything for the party that was necessary. 
And so I want you to think about what Jesus, again, there's so much more to this miracle than just simply turning water to wine. I want you to think about the fullness of this miracle. What's happening? They were in dire need of something. In fact, what caused Jesus to step in? It wasn't that they had wine, it's that they didn't. Oh, we get so obsessed with trying to be fools so that Jesus can fill us. It's a weird dynamic. But there is nothing about the gospel that tells you you should be full so that God can fill you. It's not there. What is Paul's prayer? Hey, can I decrease so that you can increase? Hey, the weakness that I have is filled by the strength you have. Because another way to look at empty is potential. A synonym for empty is clear. It's clean. There's something that, there's something that can go here. Another way to look at the emptiness of our soul is to look at there's only one thing that can fill it. And Jesus looks at this need. So I think sometimes we go into prayer and go, God, I'm good. I just want to pray for my friends. I want to be gooder. I'm not also saying that every day you should wake up and go, oh, God, I'm empty. But there should be this willingness to come into prayer and go, God, I need you to fill me. That your emptiness is not an indictment of you. It is the very thing and the very reason Jesus showed up in the earth is that your vats were empty and Jesus came to fill them. And you, what you think you have, you will run out of. And all the goodness you think you've got, you will run out of. And all the patience you think you have, you will someday run out of. And all the strength and the power and the self-sufficiency and the rise of the modern self that what I believe is me and that's how it is, it will run out. But God doesn't show us that so that we would feel bad about ourselves. It is so that He would remind us that there is only one thing and one thing alone that will fill you. What I love about Jesus is He doesn't just fill it with water and go, you guys should be happy with that. Jesus turns it to wine, not just a little bit of wine. He doesn't do the church wedding thing and only give the bride and groom wine. He goes, he goes, Everybody, I got 180 gallons. There is no chance in the world that this wedding could possibly drink 180 gallons of wine. I want you to understand that. Some of y'all weddings are like, yeah, no, ours could have. There's no, this is, at the, this is at the end of the festival. This is at the end of the party. This is towards the end. And Jesus goes, I'm going to give you more than you could ever ask or imagine, more than you would ever need, more than you could possibly, possibly consume. The message of the gospel is not scarcity, it's abundance. We always look at the Garden of Eden and we go, yeah, but that one tree. Yeah, but there were a thousand others that had plenty of good fruit on it. God is not a God that's trying to outrun sin and its curse. He's not trying to catch up to all the things sin can do to you. He's not trying to catch up to death and go, oh, but I got a little life left. He's going, no, I defeated death at the cross. I've got resurrection and it's full and free and you can't possibly, possibly overwhelm it with your sin. Because where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds much more. William Barclay says this, what John means to say is that when the grace of Jesus comes to men, there is enough to spare for all. No wedding, yeah, you heard me quote this already. No wedding party on earth could drink 180 gallons of wine. No need on earth, listen, no need on earth can exhaust the grace of Christ. There is a glorious super abundance in it. There is a feasting on the fatness in the kingdom of God.
The brisket in heaven has fat on it. There is a, that's what, I want, I'm, I'm really, I know, and some of you are going, oh, we've heard this, the abundant life thing and all that kind of stuff, and I get it, whatever, whatever, whatever. But hear me, whether or not we've experienced that to its fullness, whether we've had some rough times and difficult times that have made us kind of turn an eye to that because we're like, well, if you teach that, then when they go through bad times, they won't believe it. And, and, and No, 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 no. What we need to teach people is that the vats were empty. And then Jesus filled them and changed them. We don't need to teach people that their emptiness is bad. We need to teach people that their emptiness is the exact thing that Jesus comes to fill. And the party is just getting started. And, and here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to go a little longer, you can now. If you want to enjoy this a little further, if you want to invite more people, I gave you 180 gallons. See, life and life abundant is not, it is not. Life overflowing is not flowing out and up and back into the cup. No, life overflowing is flowing out of the cup so that others, in fact, if you read some translations, it is more like this. I've given you enough life to give away and not run out. I've given you enough life to give it away freely and to never run out. It says Jesus made a display. Jesus displayed something, and the disciples looked around and said, oh, my goodness, I believe now. I believe in what he's done, this display. And there's this one verse in 1 Corinthians. It's one verse I think is really, really important, 1 Corinthians 12. They're all really important. This one really hits home. If this one were to sum up the portion of Scripture we read out of 1 Corinthians 12, I think, I think you'd be okay. And it says this. It's interesting. Verse 7 out of 1 Corinthians 12. I suggest you highlight it, okay? You can do that on your Bible app. You can do that in your real Bible too. It doesn't change the anointing. It's still the Word of God. It's all good. It says this. To each one, God has given a what? Demonstration. A demonstration. What does Jesus do when he changes the water to wine? He displays, right? When he had done this display of his power, of his goodness, of his abundance, of his generosity, they believed. What does it say in, in 1 Corinthians? That each one is given a demonstration. What does Matthew 5 say? That when they see your good works, they will give glory to God. So here's this demonstration of God's Goodness, to you, what if you thought about the gifts of the Spirit like the grace of God to you? Yes, I believe in the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not telling you that the gifts of the Spirit are the only thing the Spirit does. I've never thought that. I think it's a bad way to limit the Holy Spirit in your life is to think that the only way you can experience Him is if you're praying in tongues or you're prophesying or discerning Spirit, all that kind of stuff. That is, but this is something the Spirit does. What if you thought of the gifts of the Spirit as God's goodness to you? What if you thought about the gifts of the Spirit like empty wine vats? Where, 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 where Jesus fills them to the uttermost. And what if, we almost did another throwback this morning. We held off. But we, what if we thought about the gifts of the Spirit as God's fullness to you? And out of the fullness, you had these gifts that were given and they were spread out. And they were, now, here's the next part of that verse that's really, really important. What does it say? What does it say in the next verse? Some of you guys have a better translation than mine on this verse, on this particular verse uh, I, I like the other translations, but, but, but here's what it says in mine, and then I'll tell you what it says in maybe some of yours. A demonstration of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what? Produce what is beneficial. 
Some translations say it like this. Given demonstration of the Spirit for the common good. See, the gifts of the Spirit are for the good of people. See, when we think the gifts of the Spirit for our own good, then we will elevate ourselves. We, we, we will be the cup that never, <laughs> never runs out, never runs dry. We, we will be the people who go somehow are distinguished as the man or woman of God who has this gift. And, and we, no, no, the gifts of the Spirit are for the good of those around us. Uh, what, a, what a distinguishing characteristics. What does Jesus do when he fills the wine vats? He doesn't just give himself wine. He doesn't just go, oh, yeah, okay, I I'm sorry, guys. I, I'm gonna, I just made a glass. <laughs> I just had a glass of wine. I'm sorry, but it's still a cool miracle. It's still a cool miracle. You filled the cup, and I turned it to wine, and now I'm drinking it. That's pretty awesome. That's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? He fills the wine vats, and then does what? Keep on partying. Where you thought this party was over, where you thought bridal party, where you thought you were going to look like fools, and you might even be indebted to other people, guess what I've done? I've given you your party back. I've said you can keep going. I've filled this to the uttermost. I've given it everything. I've filled it to the brim. So you can continue to walk in the Spirit. So you can continue to party. This. And what is 1 Corinthians 12 telling us? For the common good of people, God has filled you and given you gifts so that people would benefit from your discernment. People would benefit from your wisdom. People would benefit from your faith. People would benefit from the prophetic voice that God gives you. People would benefit from the things that God has given you. People would, people would continue to see the joy and the life and the hope that is in Christ Jesus. Message translation says this, everyone gets in on it and everyone benefits. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Everyone gets in on it and everyone benefits. That's the body of Christ. That's what it is going Wednesday night to a table. Someone opening their table. Man, so I can benefit from your wisdom. So, so I can benefit from your faith. So, so I can benefit from that thing that popped up in you as, you as I was talking and you said, you know what, something's stirring. I, I just want to share with you something I feel like the Lord gave me. You can test it all you want, but I just want to tell you that the Lord's not done with you yet. So that, so that people can, so the common good. In fact, I would tell you that the gifts of Christ will more fully be active in your life when the common good is your priority. When the common good is the desire of your heart, man, I tell you what, God will give you all kinds of gifts. When you're trying to throw a wedding feast that never ends, Jesus will fill up your vats. He doesn't look at you and go, oh, you're no longer, you're desolate, you got nothing. No, he looks at you and says, you will no longer be called desolate. You will be known as the one in whom I take delight in. I'll close with this. And it's a verse that wasn't in the lectionary, but it's a verse that I couldn't stop thinking about. In Ephesians 5.18, the verse says this. It says, and don't get drunk with wine. As in a group text I was reading, and I know Caleb and Alexa are watching online. He texted me beforehand. I told him that only half the anointing is going to come through the camera, but it's okay. He says, well, the, well, well there's a, Paul's making a comparison between a life in Christ and not. And, and we read this scripture sometimes, and some of you have heard 
Some of you have heard this verse used in, in a way that says simply, oh, don't ever go drinking. Like it's that one verse that says, oh, this is all bad, and I'm not even getting into that discussion. That's not what I'm trying to get to, okay? It's a very clear distinction here. Don't, don't be drunk. But, but that's not really why he's making this phrase. It's not why he's saying what he's saying. He is not saying this so that he can tell you not to drink anything. That's not what, he, that's not what Paul's point is. What does it say? Don't be drunk with wine. Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions. Can I get an amen? But be filled by the Spirit. What is he trying to do here? He's making a distinction between the way the kingdom of the earth works and the way the kingdom of heaven works. But he's also making a comparison. He's connecting these two things in a very clear way. Don't be drunk with wine. The counterfeit. Because when you get drunk with wine, you, you act a fool. Don't be so Christian that you don't even remember those times that you also got drunk with wine. Just remember, who, who were you in that moment? For some of you, like, man, it's what some people use this phrase, uninhibited. All of a sudden, everything that comes to mind gets said. Right? Well, what's he, but what's he trying? He's not trying to make a moral statement here. He's trying to make, a, a, he's trying to give you a picture of what it is to walk in fullness of spirit. To walk in the kingdom of God is to say, listen, when you walk in the Spirit, when you walk drunk by the Spirit, delighted in Christ, when you walk in that, man, you're no longer inhibited by all the fears of men, by all the worries of life, by all the anxieties that come around you. you this is no longer inhibiting you. It's no longer holding you back. Man, if you really want to know what it is to walk, talk, and live freely, delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Because when you delight in the Lord, He will make you distinct. And this is the first step. The, the reality of this is, is that, that you can go pursuing the gifts. And even Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, hey, I really do desire that you would desire the gifts. I do. But what does he do in 1 Corinthians 12? Don't be ignorant of these things. And what he's not doing, we can read this as though he's introducing the gifts to these people. That is not what he's doing. He is actually clarifying the purpose of these things and the, and the source of them. There's a move of God happening in the Corinthian church, and what he's trying to do is go, oh, see all these gifts that you guys are operating in? Let me tell you where they're coming from and what the purpose is. They are for the common good. That when you get drunk with wine, you become self-centered. When you become drunk with wine, it's all about you and what you want, what comes to mind for you and what, what you want to do. And let's go over here and let's go over there and let's go do this thing. And let's fall down these steps and let's do all those things. But what is, when you get drunk with the Holy Spirit, when you get filled by the Spirit, what happens? Hey, can I help you with this? Can I serve you and love you? Can, can I pray with you? Can I discern this with you? Can can I, can I give you the wisdom that I'm not even sure where this came from? I don't even know how this came to mind. Can I prophesy over you? Can I pray over you? Can I, I want to see the common good happen. And the pattern is that when I delight in the Lord, then he will make me a demonstration of his goodness. He will make the common good common again. You've got a gift, and it's for the good. It's for the good of those around you. It's for the good of the people next to you. It's for the good of the people you drive past and walk past and live next to. 
It's for the common good. Now, there's an important thing that we must remember, and it's the perfect way to close, and it's this. I know I challenge you to delight in the Lord, delight in the Lord, delight in the Lord. But I don't want you to ever forget that the setup for this verse, the setup for this verse is that he delights in you. I love him because why? He first loved me. Everything we do in the life of faith is a reaction and a response to what he has already done. I delight in the Lord because he invited me to the party. I delight in the Lord because he's put food out in front of me to feast on. I delight in the Lord because, man, I partook and it changed me. I delight in the Lord because he's delighted in me. I look upon you and I see you and I am well pleased. I delight in you. I want to pray for the gifts of the Spirit in your life. But I want to pray that they are preceded by your delight in who he is and your desire for the common good of all those around you. Would you stand with me as we close? We're going to worship together. And I would love for you to treat worship at the end of our services as, a, as an opportunity to maybe process the word, maybe confirm, maybe just meditate on the things that you've heard today. And I'm going to pray. And then at the end of my prayer, I'm going to give you like 30 seconds to just ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you want to do? What, is, what do I need to hear from this? Some of you are going to hear this. I love you. What do I need to hear from this? I delight in you. That I've come to fill you to the brim. I got 180 gallons of wine for every single one of you. The party doesn't have to stop. You will now be called wedding celebration. It's all throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. I am your daily bread. If you would come and drink from me, I will give you rivers of living water. Everything about the gospel is can we delight in Jesus? Will we delight in Jesus? Because when we do, he will put us on display. He will make us a demonstration of his goodness. And some of you are already going, yeah, but I don't have the joy. And yeah, but I don't feel that right now. And yeah, I, so we're going to pray for that. That you would know that he has prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Not so that you can sit at an empty table, but so that you can feast while everybody else is fighting. So you can feast and be so full on the fatness of the goodness of God that you would never run out. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. God, I pray as we sing, we would know that you delight in us. There are some in this room today who are saying, I just, I want to give my life to the one who's given his life. I want to give my whole self. I, I want to know what it is to live with 180 gallons. I want to live in the abundant grace of heaven. This isn't about wine. It's about fullness. This isn't even necessarily about the party. It's about the grace that makes everything a party. He could have started with healing the sun. He could have started with walking on water. He could have started with all other things, but he started his ministry. He started that first domino fell when he filled, when he filled the vats full of water. Yes, he turned it to wine. But the miracle is that when I was in need, he filled me. When I was weak, he made me strong. When I decreased, 
he increased. It's not my life that I now live. It is life in Christ Jesus. And I feast upon him. Feast upon the bread and the wine. I feast upon the goodness of God. And in so doing, he has made me a demonstration. So today I pray over every person in this room. I pray right now for the fullness of God. For the fullness of your life and your joy. For the fullness of your presence. For the fullness of your hope. For the fullness of heaven. For the fullness, for the fullness. Lord, that we would see the distinction and the comparison between what this world would try to offer and what you're offering. God, I pray where there are those who have come to that place in the party, where they're looking at you and going, it's empty. We've run out. I've run out. I'm done. I have nothing left. I got nothing to offer. I have nothing to give people. I have nothing to provide for people. And in fact, they're all going to turn on me. They're all going to be frustrated with me. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to have nothing. And God, in this moment, in that very moment, is when you come to the party and you show up and you fill every heart and mind full, full of the presence of God. We thank you for it, Jesus. We thank you for it, Jesus. I want you to take 30 seconds before they start singing this song. I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me just make it more pointed than just asking what he has for you. I want you to just, I want you to say this simple prayer. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Just pray that prayer in your own words. You can extend it. You can add to it. It's fine. Holy Spirit, come. And we're going to worship.